Once again, on Core Ideas, the podcast where we are focused on all things related to lake sediments. As always, we are hosts, myself, Adam Jezorski, and my good friend, Josh Steenpot. Hey, how's it going, everybody? So, it's been a couple of weeks where we've been really focused, uh, spending a lot of time with the ghosts of paleolimnology past. I think it's time for a new arc where we focus a little bit more on uh, the present. Yeah, I think so. That was, that was fun. It was nice to do something multi-part. Uh, you really got to get into the details and, and not feel like we had to squish it into one episode or even any number of episodes. But yeah, it's time to think about more topical things in paleolimnology, things that are being done now, things that are be- becoming really important in the future, kind of even connecting to what we finished with in the last part of the history series. So yeah, let's dive into those. Yeah, and yeah, the idea would be to run a of a series on current environmental issues, the background of them, and also how paleo can help address and form and answer some of the questions that come up in their study. And one issue on in particular is really top of mind given the time of year. Uh, Christmas trees? Nope. It's winter. Uh, and it's winter. Yes. Where we live. In, in the Northern Hemisphere. In, in, yeah. Oh yeah, it's winter. It's winter where we live in the Northern Hemisphere and up where we are. That means a lot of snow and ice, which also means a lot of something else. Road salt. Road salt. <laughs> ah, there we are. Okay, good. I thought we were, I didn't know where we were going. Gingerbread, ice skating. Okay, good. Nutcrackers. Nope. Nutcrackers, yep. <laughs> nope. Holiday carols, all those things. Uh, I thought it would be good to start with a bit of a session on a environmental issue that seems to have really attracted a lot of attention in the last couple of years. Like you see it a lot more in terms of popular media talking about um, the downsides of, not the downsides of world salt, I guess the downsides of too much world salt, I guess is where it all comes uh, comes from. Um, so basically for our listeners in more tropical environments that may not be familiar with the whole idea of why would you put salt all over your roads and streets and sidewalks? That's kind of silly. Um, Well, the reason that it's done uh, in the wintertime is it's used as a de-icer or anti-icer of roadways just due to um, lowering the freezing um, point uh, of the precipitation that lands on said roads and sidewalks. Yeah, exactly. And and it, it's not bad. So we're talking about sodium chloride, not not just any salts. Uh, although broadly, any salt really will depress the freezing point a little bit. It's just that sodium chloride is so inexpensive uh, and readily available. That's what historically has been used. Though we'll talk a little bit about some other salts uh, towards the end for other applications that are a little more niche. Um, but yeah, that's the exact idea. It brings the freezing point down, works to about minus 10 Celsius, I believe, something in that range, uh, below which, which isn't actually that cold, below which temperature wise, uh, municipalities and regions and, and other locations will tend to switch to a different, uh, agent to either bring the freezing point down even further or to act as an abrasive as opposed to an anti-icing agent like 
sand, for example. So in Canada, it's very common, one, because it's, it's less expensive, but also because it works in colder climates to switch to sand when it gets really, really cold. Yeah. And historically, this has been uh, a, well, what's the word? I, a public safety measure, I guess, that has been in place for almost almost 100 years. So I think the first um, application of it uh, in the United States was in New Hampshire. That took place in 1938. And since hmm. then... So not, not too long after cars probably well, became mainstream, yeah? yeah? Well, yeah, absolutely. It goes hand-in-hand hand with cars, I guess, of yeah, especially, you know, um, in the early days of cars, uh, you know, pre-seat belts, pre-any of this, sliding off the road, um, you know, pre-anti-lock brakes, uh, I'm sure it was a Pretty much bigger truck to deal come and get you 30s. out of it, out of the ditch. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. As a big, de- as big of a deal it is today, I'm sure the you know this concern regarding you know the safety of driving in the winter of just if you put the car in the garage and go back to the horse, you know during yeah. the winter months, yeah. um, and that's general shift of looking for a way to make winter driving safer. Um, but since then, uh, there's been an exponential growth in the application. And it's hard to get real numbers on this because sodium chloride is not a particularly controlled uh, substance. And there's a lot of application both from the public and also from the private. Like it's not a big deal for you or I to walk into Canadian Tire, buy a bag of road salt for our own laneway or driveway or um, sidewalk. Dump it in a single thing if you want to. You could pile it into one giant pile and no one would and No, no, one, no, no, one's, one no one's really care. tracking that at all. But it's estimated that in the U.S., uh, they're currently using somewhere on the order of 20 million tons per year. And then in Canada, which has a much lower population, um, but is all of it is northern, relative to the States, or almost all of it is northern relative to the States, uh, it's estimated it's somewhere between 5 and 10 million tons per year. Um, and uh, that has... Yeah, which is a lot of salt. That is a lot of salt. And luckily, um, you know, not too far from where we live, like a couple hours drive, uh, happens to be the largest salt mine in the world. Yeah, I had no idea that this was the case. For one, I never really uh, thought that much about underground salt mining. I picture which is, you didn't. is where the it's one of my passions. Huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you have some amazing hobbies, uh, which is actually where most of the salt that's mi- uh, mined, well, th- that is used, uh, comes from these underground deposits in old lake beds and old marine environments, etc. From from times uh, past, uh, I just for whatever reason pictured more where we get our kind of eating salt. So evaporation locations that are open to the atmosphere. But no, the largest salt mine underground under uh, uh, Lake Huron, right? Yeah, Lake Huron. Way under Lake Huron. It like extends like seven kilometers underneath the lake. Mm-hmm. Which is- and it's this massive, massive complex uh, owned by Sifto or Sifto is the company it's owned by another corporation. And that's the brand you would, you would find it under. And I went and checked the salt for my softener and does come from that well, that location or at least is that brand no, same here. and uh it's a massive complex they have the very specialized uh, uh trucks and and uh, mining equipment that are reassembled under the under the lake they have a town effectively a town for all the workers who are needed to 
mine this location is um, unbelievable. Yeah. Like I remember seeing a documentary um, years and years and years ago about it. And it wasn't about uh, the one in Goddard specifically, but there is another one, I guess, somewhere on the outskirts of Detroit. So under probably under Lake Michigan rather than Lake So probably Huron. the same deposit, like the same origin of this the salt but you know it definitely struck me as like you know it's almost like uh you know surreal seeing these giant dump trucks but they're you know driving on roads in an underground environment you know that it's all mm -hmm. been excavated over decades all for salt all for salt yeah, it's not it's not gold it's not diamonds that are under there we're talking about Something that you can and do go to the grocery store, or the hardware store, and buy in massive bags. Uh, and that, that's the part that's the funniest to, to me. You just don't picture it as uh, this exceptionally valuable commodity because by unit mass, it's not. But in terms of the amount and the use of it, it really is. And it has a lot of uses, not just from a safety perspective, like we're talking about, sort of from an environmental application, but chemically, from uh, chemical manufacture and other things. It really is a, a, a major resource. And so we're a couple, we've been talking a little bit about road salt, but we've not really hit the key question of, so what? You know, who cares about these 20 million tons of road salt? Like, you know, the road using public should be a lot safer. Um, and, it, and is. You know, uh, a lot less uh, collisions and sliding off the road, a lot less death and tragedy. Is that not the end of the story? Yeah, it's not, unfortunately, um, because that that is the part that's easy to see. You know, you, it's easy to see the minivan that slides off the road, uh, and we don't want that, and that would be a problem. And so it can, it's not easy to remedy that problem, but there are unintended consequences of all of this being applied to our laneways and our driveways and streets of all sizes in massive quantities that, that it has to go somewhere. Uh, whether it is just being washed away at the end of the season because everyone in from the northern climate perspective is used to seeing the huge concentrations of salt on every uh, parking lot that they go into that's built up and been pushed aside and then the snow melts and leaves all of this behind. But it's not there in the fall. It's not like someone went and collected it. So that salt went somewhere. Or if it's doing its job and mixing with the snow and the ice, melting it and then washing off of the road so that you can safely pass, that went somewhere as well. And it, as we know, most things from the terrestrial make their way down slope Downhill. to the aquatic. And from a limnology perspective, that that's a problem. Yeah. And there are other problems as well, other than the ecological ones. And so I think there's a lot of documentation on the corrosive impacts of the salt. So impacts on uh, public infrastructure, um, you know, uh, affecting the rebar in bridges and uh, other sort of road um, infrastructure, uh, the impacts on the cars themselves. But well, that's true. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But on in, on this particular podcast, we we it's not really corrosion on industrial goods and public goods is not really. Is this a car podcast? It is not. <laughs> oh. We are more concerned about the potential poisoning of rivers or river life by copious amounts of salt. Oh, I thought we were going to talk about 
I thought we were going to talk about uh, like American muscle cars from Cuba in the fifties and how they're still all available to to be used. Uh, no, nope. because they don't have salt to apply to the roads. Not today. No, we're going to be talking about because this is a podcast uh, dedicated in many ways to limnology, which is the study of fresh water. Water becoming less fresh is a potential concern. As a whole, maybe I'm wrong, but I remember you know talking off and on with my master's supervisor about uh, you know potential impacts on aquatic life with road salt. You know, fifteen, almost pushing twenty years ago now, um, but it really seemed to have exploded into public consciousness. Uh, with a paper in PNAS that came out in 2017 by Dugan et al. How do you pronounce the last yep. name? Dugan. Mm-hmm. Who is a professor uh, now at uh, Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison, I believe, and, and continues to work quite heavily on this topic for sure. But the, I agree. When you said that in the introduction, uh, it, it, I, d- I didn't chime in at the time, but I think you're right that Beyond maybe plastics in the environment and sort of climate change broadly, salt really is the thing you hear the most about. And that I don't think that was the case five years ago. Yeah. No, it's definitely this one. That, like, in my mind, this paper really launched it in. Um, it was picked up by the media. It had the title, Salting Our Freshwater Lakes. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where, in many ways, uh, acid rain is largely an ephemeral issue to, you know, John and Jane public in the same way that climate change is. But salt is something that they see in their everyday life when there's like piles of it or excessive amounts of, um, applied that you just see like piles of like the dyed green salt all over the roads and sidewalks. And then just the idea of fresh water being turned more brackish and then the obvious impacts that would have, you know, just in terms of everyone thinking of uh, freshwater environments versus marine environments, like it's a really uh, palpable um, issue that does not take much scientific background at all to wrap your head around of this. These two things are different. We're artificially making them more similar. That has to have some sort of knock on impact. On, t- on top of everything else that is worth worrying about. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the paper went one step further and looked not just at the trends in data, but it was one of the kind of uh, really strong contributions being the fact that very little, uh, what's the word, impervious land cover was a strong determinant of how much more salty lakes had become. So it didn't take much road because uh, it was a massive data set that they were working with and summarizing and using EPA data and all sorts of different data sources for bringing huge amounts of data together but didn't take a lot of uh, roadways or impervious uh, landscape of any kind to set this trend off and that uh, it, it really is a pervasive problem when it's such a small amount of the catchment of the lake needing to be uh, covered by a surface that salt's going to be applied to for the trend to to hold, uh, and I think that's that maybe is also part of the sticking and the the initiation of this focus on this topic being the fact that it, it really is a huge problem because it's absolutely everywhere, and in such huge amounts, 
and you know you do a little bit of googling or reading and in, in the popular media on this in terms of newspaper articles and things like that and very quickly you come up to the idea um you know of images of moose licking cars to like get salt intake like this is something that is normally fairly rare in society in like terrestrial environments and hard to find and you know so you have situations where the mooses the meese are uh, um, attracted <laughs> to the salt. No, <laughs> just just found it seems weird. Um, it fit well there, though. <laughs> uh, the uh, they're attracted to just like salt deposits that are building up on cars. In some of the episodes, I'm like, the salt is like crack for the moose. They just can't help it. They're just going for yeah. it, and they're going onto roadways to get at it. And here we are applying it by the millions of tons, and it's all being washed downstream. And what are the potential knock-on effects? Because, um, you know, changes in salinity uh, are profound changes in aquatic environments um, because a lot of the uh, aquatic life is very well adapted to the prevalent conditions and have all sorts of mechanisms for maintaining homeostasis with regard to salinity and uh, um, a big infusion of salt can wreak havoc in a lot of uh, physiological pathways. For sure, because salt is not something that is readily available in uh, to change in the environment. Lakes are dominated by their major ions, and they don't really change from that over relatively, even relatively long time scales. With the exception of marine or location, freshwater locations that are near marine environments where there's potential for spray, uh, sodium and chloride are not the dominant ions in inland freshwaters. It's calcium, magnesium, sulfate, uh, those ions are the ones that are going to dominate and chloride is in particular chloride is not that common in the terrestrial landscape and there's not the source of it for that to change, right? There's not uh, natural seams of chloride bearing uh, easily erodible minerals in content or in concentration enough to change the concentration in the fresh water. You know, if obviously a, a water comes into one of those mines and there's a seam, of course, that's going to change things. But broadly, uh, no, you're exactly right there that organisms get adapted to the ion conditions in that location. And it is the defining feature between fresh inland waters and the marine or brackish locations. And so I guess the next thing we talk about, even like to talk about would be how can paleolimnology kind of help um maybe not answer this question it's more a case of establishing what the impacts are and establishing baseline conditions and i'm just thinking we didn't make there's no mention this in the notes but just kind of riffing uh along here um you know you probably have a lot to say about um you know freshwater environments being inundated by salt water from your phd work in terms of like you know, massive changes due to storm in coastal lakes um, and how complete the turnover can be. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, and that's a coastal location, but so Adam was referring to some of my graduate work, which is on a storm surge or a series of storm surges and how uh, marine water inundated or flooded into the Mackenzie Delta in the Western Canadian Arctic, which is a large fresh uh, freshwater environment. It's a very fresh delta, and it was always a, 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 a system dominated by freshwater conditions. But then there was this big storm, and all the salt water came in, and 
lo and behold, it was, you know, uh, regime altering, it completely changed the diatom flora in that case, but also the cladocerans responded and the coronamids uh, was an ecosystem level change. And it took a long, long time. In fact, I'm not, I wouldn't say I would, would guarantee that it has gone back to the conditions that existed before this one particular impact. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, it's very, it's analogous because we're not dumping in sodium chloride to those lakes, but it is going to impact all the different uh, levels of the food web because from primary producers up to consumers, uh, they become adapted to those conditions and some species will be adapted to more saline locations. Uh, but they, but unlike the Delta where there are saline ecosystems nearby, it may not actually be that easy for organisms to uh, immigrate to more inland salinizing environments because there isn't that source population to facilitate that. So it might actually be worse than in, in more coastal locations. Yeah, and also, and that, as you alluded to, the big difference is that was like a big single event. Yeah. Like it changed massively overnight, whereas largely when we're talking about world salt and it's a long-term impact over decades of exponential growth of salt application. And your work was focused on um, the diatom flora within lakes and uh, in coastal regions. Uh, but we did a bit of a, you know, mild research dive onto all this, looking for how far back could we go look to find paleolimnological uh, studies looking at the impacts of salt. And we found one in a fairly early journal paleolimnology uh, issue from 1991. And so it wasn't looking per se at the application of road salt, but it was looking at potential leakage from a salt storage facility and the impacts that that had over decades on, on uh, the Christified community uh, downstream. The more of a point source, uh, catastrophic kind of leakage uh, or or long-term press from this one location. Yeah. But yeah, on Christophytes. Yeah, yeah, and that's like 30 years ago. Um, it's even small, 1991. Um, and uh, yeah, so it kind of like definitely predates the current zeitgeist, but just kind of illustrating that this has been a known issue for a while. It's been gradually building and building and building and has now reached, you know, the public consciousness's recognition that this is a very big deal. We, many of these lakes, or there are many lakes that have been profoundly impacted. And it's really interesting. Um, and in a more recent article from our lab, <clears throat> uh, led by Robin Bellow, um, was looking at the impacts of clodocerin or the impacts of road salt and clodocerins. And I remember in this paper, it's very, very recent, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but one of the parts that stands out to me is like one of the impacted lakes is just off Highway 11. It's basically tucked inside almost like an elbow of Highway 11. So it just gets a huge amount of um, runoff into a, a relatively tiny lake. Um, and as such is like one of the most saline lakes in the whole Muskoka Halliburton region. Um, yeah, and it's really low too. Like the roadway comes down quite, if I recall, having kind of driven past there and recognizing it from talks that Robin had given, uh, it's quite low lying compared to the actual road. So it would collect absolutely everything from road 
up and down in either direction for hundreds of meters. So yeah, it, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, and it's a good test of the fact that Paleo can track these at multiple trophic levels. So we've talked about Clodocera uh, from this most recent paper, Chrysophytes. We know that diatoms are good indicators of salt. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a, a pretty impressive paleolimnological uh, toolkit to reconstruct this condition. But we can also use it to infer m other environmental changes that might be related to an increase in saline input to the lake that might be other more environmental, so anoxia, those kind of things. Yeah. And then, and then just lay, like illustrate that a little bit. You know what? Except it may not be super obvious when you say, oh, road salt will lead to more anoxia. Well, if you get enough salt going into a particular lake, you can lead to the formation of like a saltier layer at the bottom of the lake. And for those of you that have taken like an undergraduate limnology course, one of the standard labs would be actually constructing this in an aquarium and all of a sudden dyeing them different colors. And you realize that uh, your salty layer at the bottom is um, a little bit denser and is harder to mix in. And so you can run into situations where because you have a salt layer at the bottom, um, you have less complete mixing at fall and spring overturn. And all of a sudden, um, you know, auction conditions may become limiting during the summer just due to that incomplete mi mixing. And then all of a sudden, you're running into knock-on effects where, um, you know, terms like myrmectic layer may seem quite abstract but uh, to uh, the general public. But having, you know, fish kills due to anoxia all of a sudden um, go makes this uh, a, a very real uh, concern. Yeah, you get weird conditions in those anoxic uh, saline layers because not only do uh, not uh, you don't get aerobic organisms, but you get weird salt tolerant things like sulfur reducing bacteria and all sorts of different organisms that can live down there and tolerate those pretty harsh, quite saline conditions because it tends to concentrate quite a bit down there, much more than would be diffused into the whole lake once it does settle to the bottom. Uh, and that can can lead to all sorts of different things. And it can lead to all sorts of knock-on environmental effects. So you get anoxia at the sediment water interface. You get the release of bound phosphorus into the ecosystem, which results in uh, eutrophication from within, from internal loading. You get more biological oxygen demand. So it's a, it's a big problem from an environmental perspective that's started by something fairly innocuous or, or what seems like it. And as always, it just... With all, you know, environmental concerns that are inadvertent like this, just always seems to harm the organisms that we like and the organisms that we dislike are indifferent. And so mosquitoes, for example, do not seem to care how salty it gets. They're highly salt tolerant. So, of course, yeah, you know, it figures. It's like, you know, is there ever any of these examples? It's like we accidentally, you know, release PCBs or whatever, whatever. It's like, <laughs> and made everything kind of nice. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, all of a well, I don't think it'd be PCBs. <laughs> you know, it never happens that way. It's just like, yeah, no, road never. salt. We made the worth warmer. You know, we made the rain more acidic. And it's like, no, just make stuff that was previously yeah. nice shittier. Hmm. Seems maybe like micro, maybe like microplastic beads will make like unicorns or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they make fish tastier. You know, it'd be just yeah, gonna be something. That's right. 
<laughs> Sometimes. Well, you're, well, I mean, you are pre-salting the fish before you get them out of the lake. So. Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, the, the trout might, which definitely doesn't like the salty conditions, at least might come out a little tastier. But probably not, because fish are really not tolerant of, of uh, they're not very good at getting rid of salt uh, in many cases. So, yeah, fish are, are on the losing end, whereas mosquitoes, sadly, are on the on indifferent part of the scale. Well, first off, the obvious question is why? Why is there so much? Um, and, you know, I think the most obvious answer is because society, by and large, places a fairly high on high value on human life relative to clodosterin life or diatom life. Um, yeah, and, for sure. And, and I don't know that that's wrong. Oh, I don't think, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> not faulting anyone for that. It's pretty yeah. obvious. Um, um, but you know, it runs into the issue of partially because road salt, um, or the salt used, uh, to apply it to the roads, um, is relatively cheap. It was one of those things where, you know, absolutely inundated with more than is necessarily needed. Um, it's like a precautionary principle on a with regards to human life, as opposed to a precautionary principle being applied with regard to environmental consequences. I think is yeah, just not why. paying attention to to what is enough and what is sufficient, and at which point it becomes not just uh, a diminishing return, but you're working at odds with your own uh, priorities, uh, your own money your own infrastructure, because yeah, it's cheap to spread a bunch of salt, but a new bridge is really expensive. Uh, and and I think we've gotten a little bit better at, at managing the amount uh, in some locations. Uh, that that certainly is not universal though. Uh, and, it, and, and it's also something that's hard to regulate in, in some cases. So it probably comes down to the individual like operator of the salting machine. Uh, to to pay attention to all of those different things. At the same time, I was driving this massive snowplow and trying not to hit that car and run over that, you know, while they're making the turn. So it's uh, it it has to be something that, from a using less perspective, and we could talk about alternatives, but it has to be something that is sort of ingrained into the entire system to some extent. Yeah, that you know, you want to use enough. Plus a little bit, you know, again, precautionary principle, but not massively oversalt in terms of it just washing away straight, straight, straight away. Um, and, you know, but it could be worse. Um, again, doing a little bit of the background reading this, I was absolutely shocked uh, to see that some states are using, uh, repurposing the salty wastewater from oil well production by spreading it on the roads. Like in terms of, that's, it could be worse. It could be worse. Like yeah. that. We're just going to spread tailings <laughs> onto the road. <laughs> I was great. absolutely horrified. And it's not a small number. Of, like, I don't know what it is today, whatever the article I was reading, uh, it said something like that. And, um, at one point, uh, that was a okay in like 13 of the U S states. It's like oh, shocking. Holy crap. And then, cause then when you factor how many of the states don't need any, DIC yeah, yeah, at all. For like, sure. I don't think yeah, much is being Arizona. used in Florida. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah that's, it might be fine where they don't have any surface water, but those are not 
those are not the states that need it. Those are the drier, more southern locations. Yeah. Like if they don't have lakes, they've got streams yeah. and they've got rivers and they all collect somewhere. And then they and then it becomes an issue where you get, you know, it dumping into the marine environment, which is salty, but it's not that, you know, it's not all of the salt from the entire lower 48 states, or at least the ones that use salt, dumping into the Mississippi Delta, for example. You don't wonder it's anoxic there. Add all the nutrients on top of it. Whew. Yeah. Let's add some uh, some some tailings uh, materials to that as well. Delicious. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that was a, a shocking little fact discovered while doing the back some more background reading for this because I was aware of like road salt in general, but uh, learned a lot just prepping for this show. Um, another thing that really uh, struck me is that it's in many ways become a, a political issue in terms of public awareness and. You know, I don't know what I don't know exactly how to feel about this, um, but there is lots of like naming and shaming in particular on social media. Like there's lots of photos of like little walkways on university campuses, particular roads here, that and the other of just like shame on you, whoever you put way too much. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if that helps. Like it almost like rubs the wrong way because it just it seems like a maybe. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I know what you mean, though. It's, it makes it confrontational, or I think it should be more educational. I guess is where I'm, I'm coming from because it just, you know, because it probably isn't a perfect solution, right? Like, what is the acceptable number of people falling down the stairs and broken necks versus Daphne? Like, at some point, you know, the argument can always be made that any is too much. Um, but that from an environmental point of view, but, um, none is a completely unacceptable point of view from a societal point of view. So -hmm. it's going to be a sweet spot has to be reached somehow. And that will probably be an awareness of like, yeah, just don't dump it willy nilly. Um, so I don't know. I I don't really, I can't articulate it well, but I think, no, I think that was a good I think that was a, a good articulation of it. Is that education is is much better than showing a picture of the the person's front of their store and saying "Don't come here because these people use too much salt." There are some really good infographics on what the right amount looks like versus just being poured everywhere. People like Hillary Dugan have uh, lots of great resources for dissemination to the public on how to go about doing it right and not. Uh, creating a problem while at the same time still making sure that grandma doesn't fall on the stairs when when she comes into the house. Uh, and I think that's that's the way to go, as well as starting to use non-tailings uh, alternatives where they can possibly exist, because there are other options. They're not necessarily all uh, easier or cheaper or uh, better in every situation, but if we can minimize our use in some situations, in the largest municipalities or in some locations versus others that have access to resources, sometimes they're byproducts of other processes, then we can bring down the entire burden overall. But the one last thing I was thinking of just as I was saying that is I kind of understand a little bit why people uh, jump on the bandwagon because it's an, a fairly easy problem. John talked about this in the last episode and that acid rain was an easier problem than climate change. And road salt in some ways is easier still, right? Because it doesn't transport across boundaries 
it's local. Yeah, it's like a your driveway kind of level. Exactly. If you can stop your municipality from putting more salt, then you've done something local. Uh, and I kind of understand that in this world of, man, the problems are really big and they're really hard and they're things that not just one government but global civilization needs to tackle. This is something you can really sink your teeth into. Uh, so that I, I do understand that part. And in that sense, you can do a lot of really good work, but do it the right way. And so there are a variety of alternates out there um, that range from things like beet juice to pickle juice to chicken grits, which I'm not entirely sure what it is. Um, Mostly juices. <laughs> chicken juice. products. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know what chicken grits is. Don't quote me on that. I have no <laughs> idea. I don't eat chicken. So. No, I know what pickle juice is. There's <laughs> yeah. a chicken grit that kind of threw me for a um, I'm not going to Google it. I can only imagine what it looks like. But... You know, it seems like those don't seem as able to be scaled up uh, on a, you know, provincial or state or national level. It's going to be fairly local. Like, I have no idea how many beets are required to produce 20 million tons of beet juice, but I imagine it's a lot. Um, and growing things or repurposing this sort of organic waste on a industrial level seems a lot more difficult than mining a dump truck full of um, sodium chloride from underneath Lake sure. Huron. Yeah, it's always going to be more expensive. I was surprised actually by how many municipalities do already use some sort of derivative of beet production, including Toronto uh, oh, in some that. locations uses yeah. that. Uh, and it, it's a byproduct. It's not like the the nice pink beets. That, I was going to say, you know, would you know? Like by, no, by just looking? No, because it's from white sugar beets. Like it's, it's a byproduct of oh, uh, of making uh, sugar. You know, instead of using cane sugar, beet sugar is quite common, and uh, and this is a byproduct of of that process. It's white, uh, and it's used. It's often used uh, not just uh, in the de-icing, so after, but it's used as an anti-icing solution that's put on the road beforehand because it has a really nice alternative that it has a much lower freezing point depression than sodium chloride does. So it works better, but it is expensive. There's no doubt about that. Okay. So on the one hand, I massively dis- I didn't look into it at all, but massively disappointed that the beet juice trucks would not be like leaving purple lines down the middle <laughs> of uh, the road to mix in with like the brown sandy lines, just make yeah. winter roads look even more attractive. Um, but uh, then that just makes me question, just pops another question in my head is like, what do the Mises think of uh, beet juice deposits on the road? If it's a like byproduct of sugar production, are they all over that oh, the same way know. they are in the salt? All the moose. I thought you meant actually mice. I'm like, well, I don't know, Adam. Beats me. But you referring to, yeah, no, I have no idea. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I'm okay. not sure. Yeah. Sorry. Bring it more into a more serious beat here. Uh, but one of one of the uh, um, not easy alternates, but I think quite scalable alternates would be instead of applying, you know, rock salt crystals, which is uh, you know the, in the solid form, is uh, actually getting into solution first and applying it as liquid brine to the roads. Um, seems to be one way to reduce uh, salt applications that is in common use already in many municipalities. Um, and so, yeah, I think we are talking earlier, I think 
that that's good down to like minus 10, I guess. Theoretically, salt water could get um um, get you down as low as minus 18, but I have no idea what sort of concentration that would require. Um, but there are other alternates. Um, but then you wonder what sort of other um, uh, trade-offs are being done because there are things like solutions of calcium chloride that could be used that are usable at much lower temperatures all the way down to like into the minus 50s uh, centigrade. Um, but... Uh, you know, you're still putting lots of chloride on the road in those cases. Yeah, and chloride, I think, is is the more yeah, toxic. Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever part too, of the, the sodium. The, the actual sodium component of it all, I don't think, is as big. Not a deal. as not as quickly as the as the the chloride part of it is my understanding. Certainly, I don't know every organism, but many of them, the physiology issues are with the chloride. Uh, and that, yeah, you're right because we use other beyond. Um, road salt applications, I guess, just the fun. I think there's lots of other sources of salt in the environment. We talk about dust suppressants, uh, calcium base, some of them are potassium chloride. Now, potassium itself is is a little bit more toxic than uh, sodium. Um, but calcium we, chloride would also be used as a dust suppressant as well uh, in the summertime to keep uh, on um, dirt roads and gravel roads the amount of dust down. Um, so it's, it's not only coming in in the wintertime. Sure. Yeah. Oh, and, and one that is, I, I think have thought a little bit, well, I've thought about it uh, a fair bit recently uh, since we've moved to our house, but we have a, a water softener in our house because the water uh, in our town is uh, from groundwater. So it's quite high in, in uh, cations. It's really high in calcium and magnesium. Uh, and the water softener, you, I dump bags of salt into it not every day, like it takes a while to go through a bunch of bags of salt, but it's more than I put on the, more than I've put on the road in my entire adult life. Probably I would go through, uh, in a time period and the way it works is it exchanges it like, uh, 10 years. I don't know. Since I've like been driving a car regularly and, and I I would, we don't use very much salt at all. Okay. No, I saw Um, about like, how long does that last in your water softener? uh, 10 years versus four months, five months. They use a lot. They use a lot of salt. And uh, the more efficient ones use less. Uh, so it uses, I don't know, maybe it, t- it holds two bags and that lasts like four months, five months, right. something like that. So I might use like six bags a year uh, of pure rock salt. And uh, I, and it works. And most of the chloride actually is, is a byproduct because the idea is it recharges the beads uh, in the softener to pull out the calcium and magnesium with sodium. So it holds the sodium in for some time. And that's what comes out in your taps because it's not that big of an issue. And it, you know, it's better for the pipes and the water heater and make showering bearable. Uh, but it's putting all the chloride into the, into the lake. And silky smooth hair. Sure. Uh, not, <laughs> uh, I'd have to get a second opinion on that. Having very little myself. <laughs> But uh, I, I do believe that's that's an improvement. Yeah. All right. So anyway, it, it's not just roads. There, salt is an issue. Uh, there are there are alternatives to sodium-based softeners, for example. But uh, but they're they're expensive and not very common and not as efficient, as far as I know. Okay. Yep. So it's something I, I have to grapple with myself a little bit. Oh. This has helped think about it a little bit too. Yeah. 
going to clean up your act. Just deal with the hard water. Screw the pipes. Baby's hair be standing on top of his head. It'll look like Einstein. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Get some. We just need to pour some beets because we don't have any sugar beets here. So this house will be weird. We'll all look crazy haired. Be it looks like Grimace got murdered on the on the uh, <laughs> sidewalk from all the beet juice we've been pouring around. <laughs> and uh, yep, great. So I guess that's uh, uh, somewhere to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The murder of Grimace. <laughs> it's, it's a fitting end. It's been in my head since you said about pouring purple juice all over the uh, the road that looks like poor Grimace got run down. Um, and I had to fit it in somewhere. So Okay. But I think uh, we've covered the topic pretty well there, both in terms of the actual issue, um, how paleo has been able to tie into it, and it will continue tying into it um, as this is something that's only been a growing issue, I guess, for the last 70, 80 years, I guess, in most locations. But the timing uh, will vary a lot between location of when they actually start applying it. They probably didn't have particularly good records of how much was going on the roads. So if you want to establish baseline of what normal conditions were in terms of um, chloride-sensitive organisms, um, paleo would be the only way to get that kind of data. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as we're seeing in the literature, um, is being applied today and I'm sure will be a avenue of growing research going forward for quite some time. Yeah. I think you'll probably see a lot of paleo, uh, work. It's kind of like a lot of the problems you identify it after the fact. And while we have records from long-term data, uh, the ecological impacts may not be as easy to disentangle. So let's go to the sediments and see what happened. Yeah. What? What the indicators tell us. All right. So I think that's a good place to wrap it up. As always, um, you can reach us primarily th- um, through Twitter at uh, Core Ideas Paleo. Yeah. Uh, you can email us. us. I, this, this week I checked the mailbag before we start recording. Uh, unfortunately, once again, there's nothing in the mailbag. Um, well, we only released the last episode of the history arc today uh when we're recording this on november 30th so i I suspect it'll just fill up over the next few weeks there'll be a flood of commentary on that over the holidays i'm sure um but yes and so you want to send us um long so yeah uh tweeting at us is the quickest way to get in touch with us but if you want to send us longer form stuff in terms of questions or comments or whatever you can send us an email at coreideaspodcast at gmail.com um and you can find a all past episode links to all past episodes and show notes or blog posts related to past shows on our website, which is coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. But you'll find a link to that on our Twitter page. Um, and uh, I think that's where we're at. Thanks for listening once again. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, cover a topical paleomology uh, from a couple of different angles. Uh, yeah, hope it should you be a good this. new arc. And uh, we will. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye.